Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. Hey, everybody. Today, I have a really exciting episode to share with you. We're going to hear from a team of filmmakers called Persistent Productions who have made a documentary about global childhood cancer. It's called How I Live. It's incredibly well done. If you went to PSYOP this past year in 2018, you may have seen a little snippet that they showed during one of the sessions, but it's very moving. And even in the short clip that I saw, you could really tell that they took the time to understand what these people go through, what patients go through, and what families go through with a cancer diagnosis. And they really faithfully represented it in the film. So I was very excited to get to talk to them about the process of filmmaking and what they learned along the way and hear about their own insights as they got to know the global oncology community. So if you want to find out more about the film, you can go to howilivewithcancer.com. We'll put a link on the website to find out more information, see a trailer, and find out about when it will be released. So if you care at all about global oncology, or if you care about global health in general, this is a really important project that I would encourage everyone to see and to share whenever it comes out. Okay. There's several people on the call today, so I will let them introduce themselves. So without further ado, we will hear from Persistent Productions. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Persistent Productions today. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. So why don't you all introduce yourselves and tell us what you do in Persistent Productions and how you kind of helped make the film. Sure. I'll kick off. Hello, my name is Megan Shea. I am one of the co-directors and producers of the documentary film, How I Live, and also director and producer at Persistent Productions. And I'm Mike Rogers, co-founder of Persistent Productions, co-director and director of photography for the film, How I Live. And I'm David Flood. I'm the story editor on the film. I'm at Persistent Productions. I manage the post-production. Hi, I'm Fiona Chong. I'm the associate producer and editor for Persistent Productions. Um, for this film, I actually joined them like halfway through. Um, that was when I first joined the company in um, 2015, but it has been a long journey. And Irene? Oh, okay. So now I'm part of the production team. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so uh, my name is Irene Albandi. I'm the director of the Global Health Program at Dana-Farber and Boston Children's Cancer Center in Boston. And I've been working with Persistent Productions for four years now. Okay, very good. Well, thank you all for coming on the podcast and being willing to talk to us. So why don't we dive right in and tell us, you know, we, we know it's the film is about cancer and how kids in a global setting live with it, just from the context clues from the name. But can you tell us what's the big picture of the film? What story were you trying to tell and how did you go about telling it? Yeah. So we really wanted to look at what the experience of cancer was like for patients and families in low resource settings. So a little bit about kind of my background and how we as a team came to this story was that I am a sister of a patient who had pediatric cancer. That was my brother, Matt. And he lived with cancer for 10 years from the time he was a teenager until his um, mid-20s. He passed away uh, about five years ago. But really, the experience that we had as a family living with pediatric cancer was so significant, indelible, and really just, I don't know, I would call it kind of a building block of my life. And so when looking at how the situation globally, the statistics, as you know, with, you know, the cure rates in high-income countries being significantly better than in low-income countries, that really kind of intrigued us and piqued our interest. Like, what was, what was the cause of that? What were some of the reasons for that? But also, like, what did the experience of cancer look like for other families? I knew what it looked like, you know, in my own family and at Dana-Farber, where my brother was treated, I had kind of an image of what that was like and what the impact was like on families. But what were the scenarios for families who lived in some of these resource challenge settings? And how did they experience that disease, both on the patient family side, but also on kind of the healthcare provider side? What were some of the things that they were facing and the obstacles they were up against? And so really the hope or the intention when we started out was to give 
portrayal of the experience in low-income countries, not that that's a single narrative, but show some of the examples of what the experience is like for those patients, families, and healthcare providers. And how did you get plugged into this area? Because, you know, it's, there's an active medical community that is invested in mm-hmm. trying to answer some of these questions. But how did you, mm-hmm. you know, as filmmakers and really as the family of a patient, how did you get plugged into the, the global oncology scene? Sure. So it was really, you know, about kind of personal relationships and personal experience with pediatric cancer that kind of started our journey into this film and how we got plugged into the global network. So, you know, we at Persistent Productions have kind of a a long history of working on global and documentary kind of focused content. And we have offices in Boston and in Singapore. And particular doctor, Carlos Rodriguez Galindo, was my brother's doctor. And so we had, you know, a relationship around my brother's care and what that looked like. And during one of my brother's recurrences, we were in Singapore and it was at the time of the Viva conference. And it was actually more specifically kind of during the pre-conference that I had the opportunity to, to meet Carlos at the portion of the conference that looks at some of the challenges for resource limited countries. And so that started a dialogue between us because I really didn't know anything about the global situation and kind of the health disparities within that. And so we started talking kind of very conversationally about what the realities were and what kind of some of the the focuses were in terms of the themes and the problem solving within this area. And so from those kind of initial conversations, the seeds were planted, I think, on both sides in terms, would this be something that we could expand into a film? Some of these themes around global pediatric oncology. And if so, as filmmakers, really the question for, there were a lot of questions, you know, as we started thinking about how we would capture and tell that story. And as we started to kind of look at what some of those questions were and how we would go about telling the story, we became kind of more and more interested and connected. And we started kind of, I would say probably a year, if not more, a year long process of pre-production in terms of looking at how we would tell the story visually. And Mike, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about our pre-production. And So we took kind of two approaches to our pre-production. One was a very kind of typical process that we would use as uh, documentary filmmakers. And that kind of includes a bunch of stuff, but locations, characters, the research and development part of like, what are we trying to say? What is the information that is relevant to this topic? Amongst many others, uh, David and Megan can speak more to that if if we want to. But I think the second kind of strategy that we put in place that is atypical for a documentary is we worked with our partners, Irini Albanti at the Global Health Initiative at uh, Dana-Farber to really help us understand how to select the appropriate locations and in some ways an appropriate representation of a topic that clearly is larger than a 90-minute film, larger than a do- one documentary film. So how do we identify the appropriate locations to film in, the appropriate people who would speak to specific topics? And we created you know, a, a matrix of sorts that allowed us during that year, almost almost 14 months of the pre-production process, allowed us to identify the places that we felt would be most appropriate to showcase the, the reality of what was happening in the context of global health and hit on some of the topics that we thought at the beginning were going to be the topics that would be valuable uh, to express in the film. Gotcha. So you so it started really with a a personal experience with you, Megan, with cancer, and then that kind of plugged you in with Carlos, who I think a lot of the mm-hmm. listeners to this podcast uh, they they will be familiar with him, and so that kind of led you on this journey to really discover the the global scene. Absolutely. And it sounds like you were pretty careful with picking your locations because you wanted to tell, I guess, a representative story or a, a fair story for the the patients involved, I suppose. So how. Who did you land with, I guess? Like, let's kind of get into the story some. Who did you d- select and uh, how did you really go about telling their story? 
Yeah, sure. So we very much, we were within kind of the the different locations that we filmed, which would be um, Myanmar, Guatemala, El Salvador, Egypt, and Ghana. We kind of decided on the locations. And then within that, we were hoping to get kind of a somewhat representative or somewhat diverse patient group. So with attention to some females, some males, different ages of patients. And again, we knew this wouldn't be kind of exact and scientific, but these were some of the considerations when we were looking at kind of the point of view that we wanted to represent within the patient stories. And we really wanted to kind of follow patients on their journey of care and hoping to get as much of that rounded story as we could. So looking at everything from how, if they had not yet received a diagnosis, how did they enter the process? What did that diagnosis process look like for them? And then from there, what was their treatment of care? How long did the diagnosis take? And then some of the maybe less scientific, the softer, but the still very kind of real components to the care is who's taking them to the hospital? Are there other children at home? If so, who was taking care of those children? Was this causing kind of financial, was this causing a financial stress or impact on the family? And so these were some of the things that we thought before started filming that would be on our kind of line of sight. And in each place, it was, you know, particular and individual to the family that we accompanied or the healthcare provider that we followed. And um, I'll say that we, you know, we really tried to pair and partner with each of the hospitals where we, where we filmed with patients, both in order to have their kind of uh, support in us filming and, um, you know, support by way of allowing us access and um, that they felt like they knew the intention and the goals of the project, um, that each journey would be different. Some of the patients we followed from, you know, midway through treatment, some from like the very beginning, even pre-diagnosis. And so we were open to kind of different scenarios and we kind of tailored those to what made the most sense for the location. And within all of that, we were hoping to capture kind of a diverse ensemble of patients. And I think we did, I think we did that, but it was very much kind of customized uh, depending on the place. And so we have, you know, our youngest patient that we started to follow was six months old when we started. And we just got some photos on WhatsApp of her celebrating her fourth birthday. So we have got like the pinatas and all of this really wonderful, colorful birthday celebration photos that the family sent from Guatemala. And then we have our um, oldest patient that we follow in the film, um, Gabo in El Salvador. And he was like 13 when we started filming with him. Um, And so kind of a transitional teenager. And then he is our final scene in the film. And he's this, you know, very well-spoken 17-year-old teenager who is was a, you know a patient representative and speaker at the the WHO initiative with the United Nations in September. So we have this real range in terms of um, ages and experiences, but those would be kind of the two the bookends in terms of ages. That's beautiful. So did you, on average, mm-hmm. follow these kids about four years, or you said you kind of cut some yeah. more in the middle? Yeah. So some of them more in the middle, and some of them. You know, we were working, we've been working on the project for four years. And so some of those patients we've followed a bit longer, closer to, you know, if we did a year of uh, probably about three years. And then some of the patients, unfortunately, like, for example, our patient in Myanmar, we followed for slightly less than a year because she um, unfortunately stopped um, coming for follow up care. So we followed her from diagnosis through the end of her treatment. But then the family lives in a very, very remote part of the country. And um, we have not been able to track her down either through our means and then we've worked with the doctors in Myanmar and they haven't had any luck either. So in the in that case, you know, we haven't necessarily followed her for three years, but we've followed her for as long as possible. That's great. So it's striking me right now as I'm talking to you, when I talk to physicians or when, you know, the doctors think about care, cancer care, and we talk about follow-up periods, it's, you know, we kind of have these numbers and these graphs and say, you know, who survived this long, this is follow-up. But for you, I mean, right here in this conversation, we're talking about a follow-up period in terms of these kids' lives and kind of the story that you watched them, physically watched them go through over the last, you know, four or so years. So it sounds like you captured not only their medical journey, but also uh, their 
say, a coming of age story, so to speak, that yeah. you, you watch them grow up and change. And so can you comment a little bit about how you saw the different kids kind of change or grow? What's their kind of personal story arc that you noticed? Yeah, Mark, actually, I'm hoping that uh, I can turn this over to David. So the film will be 90 minutes and we have 10 times that amount of footage that David has gone through. So when we ask the question of seeing these kids go through the last, you know, the transformational period, I think he's best to speak to that. Well, from my perspective, it's interesting to watch these patients, these kids as their, as their cases develop and that sort of thing as they progress, because I've never met any of them. Mike, Megan, Irini, they've all had personal relationships with these patients, with these kids. Um, but I've, I've, I haven't gone on uh, most any of the, of, the, of the excursions, the shoots that we've done with them, the visits. So I get to sort of have this cold and distant perspective uh, on what's going on just by reviewing the footage. And like Mike said, there's a huge amount of footage. But uh, so I get to check in with them periodically, you know, as, as a new shoot would, would come up, I'd receive the footage and I would see, you know, I would see that, oh, wow, uh, Kira has, has grown up so much. You know, last time I saw her, she was like six months old and now she's like one year old and it's so different. And it's interesting, like I, I, I maybe it sounds creepy or something, but I, I kind of get to form this relationship with the kids as I, as I get new information about their cases and get to observe what their life looks like and how it's changed. And so that's been a very, I feel really privileged about that because these are remarkable kids who have endured remarkable things. It's been interesting to uh, select the pieces of their stories that we are, you know, we would consider putting forward to a, a broader audience to think about how do we communicate their personalities and their, um, their identity, their, uh, who they are as, as, as people uh, living their lives day to day. And and how that has and how they've changed over time, because it's important from my perspective as somebody who's really considering the story that we're presenting to an audience who doesn't know them. You know, I, I need to be sure that we're involving parts of their stories that that do communicate their personality and their identity. Um, and so that the audience gets to have the same feeling that I do to, to make that personal connection, that empathetic, uh, exp you know, to, to feel like they're there. Uh, to feel like these these are these are whole people uh, that we can get to know, um, as opposed to being case number, uh, you know, you know, just just sort of like a more statistical or, or uh, colder objective. Um, uh, so that's that's kind of been my experience. But yes, there there's a, a, a huge amount of, of content that we have collected that uh, obviously doesn't make it into the the final ninety-ish uh, minute film. And and so that selection process about what are the critical elements to communicate to the audience that um, that will give them that sense of knowing these these children, and, and then also uh, beyond that the the uh, the context of what's going on in the medical community uh, globally, but then uh, even within their own hospital or their region, their their country that changes from from uh, patient to patient. Uh, so that's been a little bit about my experience. Is there a particular story that comes to mind to illustrate this this change that you saw the patients go through? Good question. Meg mentioned that Gaba was, uh, how old was he when, when we first got in touch with him, Megan? Do you he remember? was um, just, thir just turned 13. Okay, so 13 yeah. and now he's, uh, <clears throat> that would make him about 17 now? Yep, exactly. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of changes that happen in a kid's life between 13 and 17. Um, we heard, and there, there are also interesting sort of anecdotes that, uh, may not, uh, you know, translate into the, you know, what made it into the film, but like, um, we heard about, uh, you know, he, he, he had a, a first girlfriend, for example, um, that we kind of heard about and got, it's just so interesting. Cause we're like, um, you know, he feels like a friend of ours, like a family yeah. friend or something like that. And so to hear like these developments in his life is just such a, um, such a special, uh, privileged place to be, uh, that, that they would share that he and his family would share that, uh, information with us. Um, so plenty of stuff that doesn't make it into the film, but that, uh, that gives me a, a more complete sense of, uh, who he is, for example, um, yeah. getting to see pictures of, 
uh, cures birthday parties, uh, for example, or, um, uh, you know, even even getting to see her, uh, you know, in the first uh, shoot that we had with her, she couldn't, she didn't, she didn't have language. She didn't, she couldn't speak. She was just a little baby. And then getting to hear her voice and hear her talk and the relationship with her mother, really, really impressive stuff that we get to um, observe. And Mark, one of the things that we um, like colloquially, I guess, ref we refer to them as our patients, which is very unusual for <laughs> documentary film crew. Yeah. We're like, oh my gosh, we love our patients. And, uh, but we really feel that we have been invited to be on the journey with them. Um, and we feel really fortunate that the families um, have allowed us to kind of share part of that, you know, really emotional journey with us. And so we do feel a bit like proud when they're as like watching them grow up on, on screen and in real life um, with the milestones that they've hit. Um, as I'm sure your listeners in the medical community do as well, we do also, but kind of from a cinema perspective. <laughs> That's great. And you said something interesting because I not being involved in the documentary film world, just watching them, it seems like, you know, there's a, a uh, effort to not become involved in the lives of the subjects, but just to kind mm -hmm. of observe and interpret the story. Did you mm -hmm. feel like you could strike a, an appropriate balance between, you know, feeling like they're, they are your, uh, you know, patients or your friends or however you would want to label it, but still saying, you know, we're trying to tell this story in an authentic way. Cause that's a, a, a struggle that I think all doctors and medical personnel can resonate with that yeah. we're taking care of these kids and we really, really mm -hmm. care about them. But at the same time, mm -hmm. you know, we have to preserve our ability to act and do what is best for them, regardless of what that means. And so sometimes mm -hmm. you have to keep a professional distance, so to speak. So did you find a similar, a similar thing as you were experiencing these kids' lives and filming them? Yeah, I think so. And I think um, it's a, you know, it's a very different negotiation in terms of our professional roles than, than your medical one, of course. But we do try to strike that um, that balance appropriately while also having having big hearts and um, feeling very, very much, especially when it comes to uh, filming sensitive content with children, that we are there to tell the story, um, but that our first and foremost commitment really is to kind of the well-being of the patients and families. And so if there is a moment where um, even if it would be great footage, if we're not welcome from the patient and family perspective, we would, of course, kind of defer to that within um, within kind of where I think we felt comfortable with our professional balance and professional roles. I think we did um, feel comfortable with pretty big, pretty big hearts and connectivity on this project in um, to um, to different degrees, but where. Um, different degrees with different patients, but where um, patients and family felt comfortable kind of sharing some of those more um, either kind of intimate moments during the journey of care or more um, uh, kind of like robust updates about whether or not it's about somebody who is, you know, a girlfriend or somebody who wants to share kind of family photos from a vacation. We felt really um, fortunate to be included, but it wasn't always kind of, um, you know, it's not the same for every, every case or every, um, every story. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I want to ask, mm -hmm. cancer means different things to different people, right? Like to a doctor, mm -hmm. it means something and primarily, you know, that's a, a medical explanation of how cells divide and proliferate in the body. Mm -hmm. But to kids, it seems like it, you know, it, it takes on its own meaning and they have their mm -hmm. own way of telling the story. So do mm -hmm. you feel like you were able to get on their level, so to speak, and really kind of mm -hmm. interpret their journey through their eyes? Because mm -hmm. I remember... Mm -hmm when I saw the clip that you showed at PSYOP and I think it was Gabo who was running mm -hmm. through the clinic and kind of introducing mm -hmm. us to all of his different <laughs> medical providers. Mm -hmm. And I just mm -hmm. sat back and I said, you know, this is amazing to see mm -hmm. um, his journey through treatment kind of through his mm -hmm. eyes. And I thought mm -hmm. that was just such a good representation of, I don't know, of how he, he was seeing his, his treatment. So do you feel like you were able to, uh, to kind of get inside the heads of these kids um, mm -hmm. throughout the time you were filming? Yeah, I think from my perspective, that was kind of the ultimate goal when we were filming what we would call kind of the follow doc moments. Um, we really tried to, in many cases, wake up with them, show up at their house at 615, 
be at the breakfast table and not ask them to do anything, but ask them to allow us to be there to film what they were doing that day. Um, in many cases, we knew that that day might result in a checkup, which is why that might have taken us to their house at 6.15 to have that kind of narrative that, you know, this is what this is what this child kind of has to do today um, after school or during school. Um, and, you know, those journeys, as as Megan said, we spent, you know, a year and a half, maybe two years in some cases from first meeting them, in some cases longer. And um, the as they grew up, their ability to understand what was happening uh, was in line with that evolution. And so, too, our filming had to kind of uh, play out in the same way. So, you know, we went to soccer practice with Gabo because his understanding of cancer was that it wasn't going to hold me back. So we wanted to make sure that the viewer understood that when he was given the okay from the doctor to play sports, that we captured that moment where he was out there on the field. Um, now, unfortunately, he broke his arm the first day he went out to try and play, but that was part of the journey. Um, and maybe it's not how he defined cancer, um, but it's how he interacted with cancer. Um, you know, on the other, on the flip side of, of interacting with cancer, uh, Kira, uh, after her treatment, um, uh, ends up not being able to, to see essentially is blind. And as she's learning language and as she's coming into her own as an individual in the world, um, as a two-year-old, three-year-old, she also now has to deal with uh, being blind in, uh, you know, in rural uh, Guatemala. And so we tried to, we tried to make sure that we captured what their experiences were like within the context of how they were dealing with the effects of having cancer, um, but not in a top-down way, really in an experiential way. Was there anything that surprised you about how they interpreted cancer to themselves or how they expressed or experienced the medical journey? That is interesting. I, I'm, I'm... I mean, the first reaction is just their resilience. Um, is constantly surprising from the perspective of what we as adults would react with, knowing that the diagnosis has just come, and you know this is this is what might happen. These are these are the things that you'll have to go through, and I would say that the resilience of every child and every family was surprising in the concept of they just kept going kept on going and and yeah and kind of what the kind of that universal commitment to trying to get the best care in whatever way possible for their child and i think this it wasn't necessarily surprising but i'll say it was one of like the dominant themes that came out in each of the locations was um the role that religion played for each of the families in um, kind of the coping mechanism for the families and also kind of for the kids as well. You know, I can think of like uh, Islam, like it's definitely something that he like talks about in, he's our patient in um, in Egypt, like, and I can think of like, I can think of in each scenario kind of either going to church or a service um, with the patient families or with, um, um, like having them talk about it in the interviews. And so I don't think that's surprising, but I think when we kind of started to look at some of like the themes across all the locations or across all the experiences, that was certainly one of them that was um, common throughout. Or were there any other similarities that you noticed between the kids? Because these are patients in very, very different contexts with different diseases. But was there, were there other things in common that you noticed about how they um, experienced and endured treatment? I think um, the difficulty of um, just how disruptive it is in the lives of the kids and the families, and I guess um, I wouldn't, again, say that that's a surprise per se, but when you see just how it plays out 
and what what it means to physically arrive at um, the hospital to receive care. Um, and in some cases, like in Gabo's case in El Salvador, his family lived relatively close to the hospital. And so it was maybe um, a journey that more of the viewers would be familiar with. Like he leaves his house, he gets in his, a car that his parents drive, and he drives to the hospital. Where, by contrast, our patient in Myanmar started out um, three days before her treatment. And um, in the rainy season, she would walk for nine miles while on chemotherapy on muddy roads with her father and then get on public buses for like 20 hours. And that's just to get in the door to treatment. And so I think um, one of the things that really um, I just had such a deep appreciation for after accompanying the patients for maybe but one of their treatment cycles, you know, maybe we just went once with them on that journey, but to look at all of the people who are sitting in the waiting room at the different hospitals and think, oh my God, what did it take for them to get here just to have the opportunity to be treated and just having such an, a respect for um, the journey that everyone was making and how you know disruptive that is in their life um, and what a huge sacrifice or um, commitment it takes to show up to have the opportunity to be treated. Yeah, that's an important point. Um, if you look at the literature about how to uh, like the the medical literature that is about how to provide care well and kind of what the medical personnel think are important factors uh, travel uh the the actual like time and difficulty of getting to treatment is a factor that comes to the surface again and again um so i appreciate that that's reflected in the actual stories and the actual experiences that you were able to uh, show on screen so we've spent some time exploring the, the kind of the perspective of the kids that you were able to capture, but there are some other important characters in this film and some other indispensable characters would be the families of the kids. And so were you able to, as you saw the kids kind of grow up and change, did you observe an evolution in the families in terms of how they understood cancer, how they related to it, um, how they were able to care for their kids? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and I would say that, as we've just mentioned, cancer being disruptive for a kid's life, so too is cancer disruptive for the family members. Um, and in one particular case, um, the, the journey of cancer uh, ended up... Um, seeing a, a mother and a father separating by the end of our journey with them, which created an even more kind of devastating effect in the storyline of, of that family. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I think that every single family that we worked with stayed positive throughout. Um, and they certainly stayed positive in front of all of the children. But I do know that we captured um, many moments where the positivity subsided and the result was um, some very difficult moments. And I think um, in terms of some of the evolutions that happened, um, also, some for some of these families, for members of the family uh, or the parents, it might have been the first time that they had even gone to the capital city of their country um, in order to receive care for their children. I know that was the case in uh, Myanmar and in Egypt. And so um, just in terms of uh, the personal experience um, kind of and the growth required to go to a new place, find resources in that place, bring your child and then kind of set your life up in a way for a number of months or years for your child to then be treated there. I think we saw um, some pretty incredible growth and understanding or participation rather from, from parents who kind of understood that that's what their child needed for care and that they were gonna um, meet that challenge. And then of course, as you know, there's all of the um, kind of other time sensitive things that happen. So for example, if you know the kid gets a fever, um, what will that require in terms of getting them there? And so I know that our patient in Egypt, um, his family talked about, you know, the mother 
it was her first time outside of her home village or kind of that region where she had grown up was to take her son to um, Cairo for treatment. And so they, um, they ended up kind of living with a family member outside of Cairo for um, a number of weeks in order to be close to treatment so that they could um, felt like they could kind of navigate that easier. But that is um, just quite a, quite an evolution in the midst of crisis to have to kind of adopt to all of that um, newness in the midst of the diagnosis. So that was pretty, um, some pretty uh, powerful things to, um, to observe. Yeah. Were you able to hear from them kind of from their perspective, what was most difficult about treatment? Cause it's easy to sit, you know, from my perspective and say, this sounds really difficult. This sounds really hard. Oh, I wouldn't like that. But were you able to hear from them kind of what they thought? Yeah. I mean, I think that for every patient's and patient family's journey, we don't include it in the film, but um, part of our interviewing process at the times that we would sit down with them was really to talk about, you know, what were some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome to make it this far or to get it to to get to where you are in the journey. Um, and I, you know, uh, I remember from our patient in Myanmar, you know, we asked the question, did you ever think about stopping the treatment? And, you know, the mother just point blank says, yeah, we thought about it pretty much every time we had to go back. We thought about stopping treatment because of many reasons, but the primary the primary one being they didn't have enough money to pay for it. Um, they couldn't afford the public transportation and the cash that they would need once they got to Yangon. So, you know, and each and each family had different moments that they would identify as being the most difficult or obstacles they had to overcome. And that was, again, part of that journey of of, of them as a family or the child as a patient moving through the 16, 18, 24 months of cancer care. And then you brought up the the issue with kind of financial toxicity, so to speak, or just the cost being a burden and particularly a burden over time. Um, one of the things that we talk about is how the families have to kind of rely on their social safety net, so to speak, or the the their um, social you know web of contacts, be it extended family, be it the uh, a church that they're a part of, or other um, you know kind of community groups. And were you able to bring that kind of wider picture of the um, context of these families' lives into the into the film? Uh, were you able to capture how they were able to support or in some ways you know, not support the families? Yeah, yeah you know, we were, but, um, but it wasn't a focus, I would say. Um, you know, I think in each um, in each scenario or in each um, patient story, we definitely have the inclusion of parents speaking about it whether it's like a school community in Gabo's case um, or a community of neighbors um, in Kira's case. Um, it is included, but I would say it's one of kind of the softer themes. Um, so I appreciate the question because it is something that I think um, in, you know, in Kira's, in the case of Kira, our youngest patient, her mother, uh, Christina, talks about what a difference the social network has played, both the religious social network um, and also um, the logistical aspect of what the town was able to provide. So she lives in rural Guatemala up in the mountains and they, um, their neighbors would drive them to the first point of contact for the bus route. So that was maybe, uh, an hour and a half, hour and a half drive to the bus where they would start their journey. But in order to get to the hospital by 7 AM, they would need to start that journey at about midnight. And so that was, um, the way they were able to do it was the community support. Yeah. Um, and can I? Yeah, please go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to add, Meg. Uh, one mm -hmm. one story that came to mind is uh, uh, in Myanmar, Shane's mm -hmm. family. Um, they borrowed uh, for them a large sum of money from a neighbor um, mm -hmm. at, but that was a you know in order to cover the transportation <laughs> and the costs around um, getting her to treatment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that 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 came with a, a fairly high uh, uh, interest rate. You know, that wasn't mm -hmm. that wasn't just sort of a, a simple borrowing situation. That was a loan that um, came with a, a larger financial burden for them. And that yeah. was, you know, I, I, I don't have a I don't know how um, 
her village came together otherwise, but that was one story that came out, um, that kind of financial assistance as well. Absolutely. And I think like, because of, you almost see like the different, the almost like the different um, levels that even people's community are able to give. And our patient in Myanmar um, that David's talking about is probably our most remote, poorest community. And so the fact that their neighbors were able to help them come together and kind of front the money um, is was, you know, I think a real benefit to them at the time. But then because of this compounding interest rate that you mentioned, David, they might be in debt kind of indefinitely trying to pay that um, thousand dollars off and so um it even with the social networks um that support the patients you even saw within those some of the really huge challenges in the face of intense poverty even within the support systems my goodness so it's just doesn't get easier for some people yeah exactly so uh, let's bring in kind of the last I think, set of characters that need to be or that should be acknowledged in this conversation, because the film is mainly about the families and about the patients, I believe. But, um, you know, you also have the medical team that are are uh, inseparable parts of this story. So were you able to um, were you able to engage the medical team very much or learn from them about, you know, what it's like to deliver care in their specific settings? Absolutely. I mean, I think that for us, um, even during the pre-production periods, we knew that the success of the film would largely be pinned to how well we could balance the narrative between the patients who's receiving care and the healthcare team who's providing care. Um, I think they're so inter intermingled, interweaved, maybe the better word, that one can't really be separated from the other when you're trying to communicate what is really at stake and what are some of the successes that are happening in the world. Um, and so in each and every location, and part of the reason, going back to that original comment about the matrix, um, part of our matrix was access and not just physical access to a building, but you know, access to doctors and access to nurses. Um, and that was so critical to us because from a very early stage, we saw just how important it was for the caregivers to be um, to be present. We saw how important it was early on to to make sure we included their voices. And I think, you know, because we do have um, Irene on the call, um, I think one of the important things that we also tried to do was. Um, make sure that we were um, including a personal story from the doctors, but also um, allowing the, the reality of healthcare from a provider's perspective as it relates to what is the reality in the global health world. Um, we wanted that to feature as well. Um, and that's really where our relationship with the Global Health Initiative was so valuable to the resulting film. Um, they provided such great insight into um, who could speak to sp specific topics, but also um, why these specific topics were important in the larger context of providing care. Yeah, Irini, do you feel that the film kind of portrayed well the particular difficulties of global oncology? Sure, absolutely. And for us, it was very important that we engage in this, what came into a long partnership and to build trust among all partners, meaning us, the producers, but also healthcare providers and the patients at the sites. And I think that also makes it real and depict what's really happening. And, and we wanted to show that a film, a documentary, is an equally powerful tool to raise awareness and advocate and mobilize people in other ways than maybe a typical clinical or maybe medical perspective, like publications or conferences, or a 
video or a PSA that we would have done on our own as a hospital that definitely wouldn't have this artistic value, but also would be a more typical and sometimes boring piece of, uh, of video that wouldn't really get the message across through so many different stakeholders in addition to patients and families, hospitals around the world, international organizations like WHO, governments, uh, NGOs. So this is a really a powerful medium to spread this word. Yeah. And you, you yourself are experienced in this domain in global oncology. And so kind of through the filming process and through kind of seeing the film as it's shaped up, did anything strike you as surprising in the film or did you kind of take away anything, any big lessons yourself? I think for me it was surprising, but um, it was valuable to see how, despite all the challenges that the families are going through and the providers, they were so open to uh, inviting uh, the producers, the film producers, actually, the team, uh, in their story, in their lives, and in their homes. Uh, and this goes back to trust. Besides skills, meaning, obviously, besides being uh, uh, very skilled and masterful uh, storytellers, that in order to really go along this uh, ride and this journey, there needs to be trust. And uh, I, I was very happy to see that despite everything that the families may go through, even after years and years, they're still actively involved and want to share their updates about their lives and their birthdays and where they are. And they're still engaged with this and happy that they were part of this. I love that. Yeah. It, from every perspective, this is a human story and you just can't get away from that, no matter how you're coming to the story. So in, in the last few minutes that we have, what do you hope for the film? What do you see as its its big impact or in your ideal world? You know, where where would it go from kind of the, the finishing of the production that you are doing right now? Well, we have um, high hopes and um, excitement around the film's release. And we hope that the film is able to capture kind of two key audiences, one being a general audience. Um, Again, going back to my experience as a family member of a patient with pediatric cancer, I've seen how kind of generous and supportive a community, um, a hospital, a state, and a country can be in supporting pediatric cancer. And so like, I know that's there and I know that's in people. And so I'm hoping that for a general audience, we can kind of introduce the idea of pediatric oncology and pediatric oncology patients. Um, as a topic that they could also find empathy and support um, for. Um, in terms of um, some of our more targeted screenings, we hope to screen the film kind of within the medical community and within kind of global health influencers. And we'd really like the film to be a part and kind of a tool to help raise this issue amongst um, um, hospitals, among NGOs, among kind of governments. So when governments are looking at kind of healthcare priorities, that this film could be part of a conversation of putting pediatric oncology um, into the matrix of care that's supported um, kind of financially and within healthcare systems for children in low resource settings. Any other thoughts from the others? I'll just add that, I mean, if this, if this film can have any influence on people in positions of authority, as Megan said, especially where uh, in places where they're developing health systems, um, if this can have any impact on people making choices about where to divert funds or uh, what spheres to uh, invest in um, or, or to, to focus on in terms of development, to, to develop their healthcare systems and, and through the, the world of uh, pediatric oncology specifically, I would be overjoyed. I think that, um, that that's, that's a big uh, strong hope that, that I have for the film, that we all have for the film, I think. When I first heard about the film, I felt similarly that we have a lot of um, knowledge about oncology in general and really how to do global health, you know, thanks to the um, work of people like Irini and like Dr. Carlos Rodriguez Galindo. Like we have made huge strides in the last few decades um, in this domain. But at the same time, sometimes it's hard to 
through our papers and through our graphs um, and through, you know, academic conferences, it's hard to impart the importance of this vital work because we are, we truly are talking about human stories. We're talking about, you know, patients, individual kids and their families and how their lives evolve over time. So uh, I want to say thank you for the film because I think this is a, uh, a very important way to represent it to, as you said, to a general audience, but also to the medical community. Well, thank no. you so much for your comments. And if I can add a plug at the end, please, um, we are, we are um, starting to create and craft a distribution plan. And also within that kind of these strategic and targeted screenings for impact. And so as we develop that, we would love to hear from your listeners and people within kind of the global health and oncology community about if they have ideas um, for screenings or venues um, that we'd like to take into consideration. And we have a website for the film, which is howilivewithcancer.com. And people can get in touch with us through the website. Um, or through our Persistent Productions website, which is persistentproductions.com. But we really want the, uh, the film to be as impactful as possible for uh, children with cancer, their families, and the providers um, caring for them. And so that is the kind of the next phase that we'll be entering into as to how to create that impact with the film. Great. We will put that link on the website, ghccpod.com. We will put their link to the film, as well as contact information for the crew. Um, so if anyone does have any ideas or has a desire to show the film where they're at, then please get in touch with them, because this is incredibly important. Thank you so much for taking the time and having us on. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to talk to us and um, hope to be seeing the film released and seeing it take off pretty soon. Thank you so much. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.